0: Chapter 10 of Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by Mary Maxwell. Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godby, Chapter 10. Oh Father, I hear the church bells ring. Oh, say, what may it be? "'Tis a fog-bell on a rock-bound coast, and he steered for the open sea. O oh, father, I hear the sound of guns. Oh, say, what may it be? "'Some ship in distress that cannot live in such an angry sea. O oh, father, I see a gleaming light. Oh, say, what may it be?' "'But the father answered not a word, for a frozen corpse was he. "'At daybreak on the bleak sea-beach, a fisherman stood aghast. To see the form of a maiden fair lashed close to a drifting mass the salt sea was frozen on her breast the salt tears in her eyes and he saw her hair like the brown seaweed on the billows fall and rise one of the most destructive storms on record and certainly the most terrible ever known on the whole english coast is the great storm of 1703 it is the only storm which has ever been made the subject of a parliamentary memorial it raged for a week over nearly the whole of England. Scores of vessels were driven on shore and perished. At Bristol, the Indriven Sea filled the merchant's cellars, destroying sugar, tobacco, and other produce to the value of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Eighty people were drowned in the river and adjacent marshes. Fifteen thousand sheep were drowned by the overflow or backing up of the Severn. At London, the river was filled with vessels, the crews of which were nearly all on shore. The storm tore them from their moorings and drove them into a bight on the opposite side of the stream. It was a strange sight they presented after the storm. Defoe says that there lay, by the best account he could take, few less than 700 sail of ships, some very great ones, between Shadwell and Limehouse inclusive. The posture is not to be imagined, but by them that saw it, some vessels lay heeling off with the bow of another ship over her waist, and the stern of another upon her forecastle. The bolt of some drove into the cabin windows of others. Some lay with their sterns tossed up so high that the tide flowed into their forecastles before they could come to rights. Some lay so leaning upon others that the undermost vessels would sink before the other could float. The number of masts, bolt sprints, and yards split and broke, the staving the heads and sterns, and carved work, the tearing and destruction of rigging, and the squeezing of boats to pieces between the ships, is not to be reckoned, but there was hardly a vessel to be seen that had not suffered some damage or other in one or all of these articles. In the city itself, the streets were covered with tiles, slates, bricks, and fallen chimneys. Common tiles rose to nearly six times their usual price. Numbers of people were killed by crumbling roofs or falling houses. In Gloucester six hundred great trees were prostrated in a space of five acres the bishop of bath and wells and his wife were among the more noted dead the total loss of life has been estimated at from eight to thirty thousand the former is defoe's but as he only counts those of which he obtained direct personal information this estimate is certainly too low a single item of this storm will give some idea of the peculiar dangers once incurred by shipwrecked sailors Mr. Wimper writes, the townspeople of Deal, in particular, were blamed for their inhumanity in leaving many to their fate who could have been rescued. Boatmen went off to the sands for booty, some of whom would not listen to poor wretches who might have been saved. Many unfortunate shipwrecked persons could be seen, by the aid of glasses, walking on the Goodwin sands in despairing postures, knowing that they would, as Defoe put it, be washed into another world at the reflux of the tide." the mayor of deal mr thomas powell asked the custom house officers to take out their boats and endeavor to save the lives of some of these unfortunates but they utterly refused the mayor then offered from his own pocket five shillings a head for all saved and a number of fishermen and others volunteered and succeeded in bringing two hundred persons on shore who would have been lost in a half an hour afterwards the queen's agent for sick and wounded seamen would not furnish a penny for their lodging or food and the good mayor supplied all of them with what they required. Several died, and he was compelled to bury all of them at his own expense. He furnished a large number with money to pay their way to London. He received no thanks from the government of the day, but some long time after was reimbursed the large sums he had expended. One not versed in the tales of the past might be astounded at such inhumanity, yet the case cited is comparatively a mild one. People acquainted with the history of pirates and buccaneers know that coasts everywhere were once more or less infested with land sharks, more merciless than any shark of the deep, who enriched themselves by the misfortunes of others, and drowning sailors would be disregarded in the race for plunder. Yet this is but a shadow of the fearful tragedies often enacted. Picture a richly laden vessel, homeward bound, with scores of eager, anxious hearts on board, and other scores in port eagerly awaiting them. The captain smiles thoughtfully as he murmurs, We shall be at home tomorrow. The mother with child in arms repeats as she thinks of the waiting husband, We shall be home tomorrow. The bronzed wanderer, returning after years of adventure, wonders if his boyhood's home is changed as he thinks, I shall be home tomorrow. There is but the faintest indication of storm. In shore, cruel, sinister faces scan the sky and the distant ship as the twilight settles down and whisper together, and scowl as they recall past disappointments. They will take care that they are not disappointed again. Their grizzled old leader will see to that. Night gathers apace. The storm bursts. The ship is far offshore and in safe quarters. It is time to act. Now, in the pitchy darkness of the night, with bowed head and faltering steps battling against the storm, the old man leads a white horse along the edge of the cliff to the tip of the horse's tail a lantern is tied and the light sways with the movement of the horse and in its movements seems not unlike the masthead light of a vessel rocked by the motion of the sea a whisper has gone through the village of a chance of something happening during the night and most of the men and many of the women are on the alert lurking in the caves beneath the cliff or sheltered behind jutting pieces of rock the vessel makes in steadily for the land the captain grows uneasy and fears running into danger he will put the vessel round and try and battle his way out to sea. The lookout man reports a dim light ahead. What kind? And whither away? He can make out that it's a ship's light, for it is in motion. Yes, she must be a vessel standing on the same course as that which they are on. It is all safe, then. The captain will stand in a little longer when suddenly, in the lull of the storm, a hoarse murmur is heard. Surely the sound of the sea beating upon rocks. Yes, look a white gleam upon the water breakers ahead breakers ahead oh a very knell of doom the cry rings through the ship down down with the helm rounder too too late too late a crash a shudder from stem to stern of the stout ship the shriek of many voices in their agony green seas sweeping over the vessel and soon broken timbers bales of cargo and lifeless bodies scattered along the beach while the shattered remnant of the hull is torn still further to pieces with each in-sweep of the mighty seas as they roll it to and fro among the rocks. Fearful and crafty, the smile that darkened the face of the willing murderer who was leading the horse with the false light as he heard the crash of the vessel and the shrieks of the drowning crew. Fearful, the smile that darkened the faces of the men and women waiting on the beach as they came out of their places, ready to struggle and fight among themselves for any spoil that might come ashore. A homeward-bound ship from the Indies— Great good fortune, rich spoil. Bale after bale is seized upon by the wreckers and dragged high upon the beach out of the way of the surf. But see, a sailor clinging to a bit of broken mast with his last conscious effort he gains a footing on the shore, staggers forward, and falls. Is he alive? Not now. Why did that fearful old woman kneel upon his chest and cover his mouth with her cloak? Dead men tell no tales, claim no property no fiction of fancy this only the last great day will ever reveal how many souls have perished at the hands of those who should have succored them think of a man and his wife reaching the shore after an exhausting struggle the man leaving his wife in a sheltered nook while he goes in search of human habitations and returning after a few moments to find his wife a plundered naked corpse and yet such practices were tolerably common even within the range of a century past in striking contrast with the heartless wreckers are those known on the british coast as hovelers these put out to sea in stormy weather to ascertain if vessels in the offing are in need of anything or are otherwise crippled and many a ship have they saved from wreck by their timely aid it appears strange that among a people so dependent upon the sea as the english no regularly organized methods of diminishing the losses by wreck existed till within the present century yet such is the fact a hundred years ago, there was no boat that could safely venture in a heavy sea, and if, perchance, some humane people wished to succor a vessel in distress, few were the means and terrible the risks. The graphic pen of Dickens in this abridged narrative will illustrate the case. The scene is Yarmouth, England. In the difficulty of hearing anything but wind and waves, and in the crowd and the unspeakable confusion, and my first breathless efforts to stand against the weather, I was so confused that I looked out to sea for the wreck and saw nothing but the foaming heads of the great waves. A half-dressed boatman, standing next to me, pointed with his bare arm, a tattooed arrow on it pointing in the same direction, to the left. Then, oh great heaven, I saw it close in upon us. One mast was broken off short, six or eight feet from the deck, and lay over the side, entangled in a maze of sail and rigging, and all that ruin, as the ship rolled and beat, which she did without a moment's pause, and with a violence quite inconceivable, beat the side as if it would stave it in. Some efforts were even then being made to cut this portion of the wreck away, for, as the ship, which was broadside on, turned towards us in her rolling, I plainly described her people at work with axes, especially one active figure with long curling hair, conspicuous among the rest. But a great cry, which was audible even above the wind and water, rose from the shore at this moment. The sea, sweeping over the rolling wreck, made a clean breach and carried men, spars, casks, planks, bulwarks, heaps of such toys, into the boiling surge. The second mast was yet standing, with the rags of a rent sail and a wild confusion of broken cordage flapping to and fro. The ship had struck once, the same boatman hoarsely said in my ear, and then lifted in and struck again as he spoke there was another great cry of pity from the beach four men arose with the wreck out of the deep clinging to the rigging of the remaining mast uppermost the active figure with the curling hair there was a bell on board and as the ship rolled and dashed like a desperate creature driven mad now showing us the whole sweep of her decks as she turned on her beam ends towards the shore now nothing but her keel as she sprung wildly over and turned towards the sea the bell rang, and its sound, the knell of those unhappy men, was borne towards us on the wind. Again we lost her, and again she rose. Two men were gone. The agony on shore increased. Men groaned and clasped their hands. Women shrieked and turned away their faces. Some ran wildly up and down along the beach, crying for help where no help could be. I found myself one of these, frantically imploring a knot of sailors whom I knew, not to let those two lost creatures perish before our eyes when i noticed that some new sensation moved the people on the beach and saw them part and ham come breaking through them to the front i ran to him held him back with both arms and implored the men with whom i had been speaking not to listen to him not to do murder and not to let him stir off that sand another cry arose on shore and looking to the wreck we saw the cruel sail with blow on blow beat off the lower of the two men and fly up in triumph round the active figure left alone upon the mast. Against such a sight, and against such determination as that of the calmly desperate man, I might as hopefully have entreated the wind. "'Master Davy,' he said, cheerily grasping me by both hands, "'if my time is come, tis come. If taint, I'll bide it. Lord above bless you, and bless all. Mates, make me ready. I'm a-going off.' I don't know what I answered or what they rejoined, but I saw a hurry on the beach— and men running with ropes from a capstan that was there, and penetrating into a circle of figures that hid him from me. Then I saw him standing alone in a seaman's frock and trousers, a rope in his hand or slung to his wrist, another round his body, and several of the best men holding at a little distance to the ladder, which he laid out himself slack upon the shore at his feet. Ham watched the sea, standing alone, with the silence of suspended breath behind him, and the storm before until there was a great retiring wave when with a backward glance at those who held the rope which was made fast round his body he dashed in after it and in a moment was buffeting with the water now he made for the wreck rising with the hills falling with the valleys lost beneath the rugged foam borne in towards the shore borne on towards the ship striving hard and valiantly the distance was nothing but the powers of the sea and the wind made the strife deadly at length he neared the wreck. He was so near that with one more of his vigorous strokes he would be clinging to it, when a high, green, vast hillside of water, moving on shoreward from beyond the ship, he seemed to leap up into it with a mighty bound, and the ship was gone. On running to the spot where they were hauling in, I saw some eddying fragments in the sea, as if a mere cask had been broken. Consternation was in every face. They drew him to my very feet, insensible dead beaten to death by the great wave and his generous heart was stilled forever such things weighed heavily upon the humanely disposed and when a century ago mr greathead who had a great heart stood at newcastle on Tyne and saw man after man drop from a great wreck into a raging sea without the possibility of rescue he set himself to work upon the problem of the lifeboat noticing that half of a circular wooden bowl invariably turned concave side upward when thrown in the water it occurred to him at once that a boat with a curved instead of a straight keel would always right itself would have at the same time was advocating padding the boat heavily with cork and the first lifeboat was constructed from these ideas a year or two later a minister in the orkneys suggested that all boats could be made self-righting by fixing an empty water-tight cask in either end so the idea of air chambers developed, and later the curved keel was made of iron to aid in ballasting the craft, so that the modern lifeboat, with curved iron keel, cork padding, air chambers, and tubes to permit water to flow out, cannot be sunk or made to float bottom-up. The men may sometimes be washed out of it or a side stove in, but the boat will always be found right side up. Strange as it may appear, though, the first lifeboat, with its crudities, saved hundreds of lives within a few years the government took no steps to institute a general system or life-saving service to the average american this seems striking but governments a century ago were more concerned about the success in war than about the welfare of the masses they studied destruction of life more than its preservation and if perchance some ruler affected peculiar concern for the welfare of the state it was generally the case that the definition of louis the fourteenth was applicable the state that's me. But Sir William Hillary and Thomas Wilson made earnest appeals to the Parliament for the establishment of a national life-saving institution, and Hillary added the more effective argument of many deeds of personal daring in the venturous work. Between 1821 and 1846, no fewer than 144 wrecks occurred on the Isle of Man, and 172 lives were lost, while the destruction of property was estimated at a quarter of a million— in 1825, when the city of Glasgow steamer was stranded in Douglas Bay, Sir William Hillary assisted in saving the lives of sixty-two persons, and in the same year eleven men from the brig Leopard, and nine from the sloop Fancy, which became a total wreck. In 1827-32, Sir William, accompanied by his son, saved many other lives, but his greatest success was on the 20th of November, 1830, when he saved in the lifeboat twenty-two men, the whole of the crew of the mail steamer St. George, which became a total wreck on St. Mary's Rock. On this occasion, he was washed overboard among the wreck with three other persons, and was saved with great difficulty, having had six of his ribs fractured. So the British institution arose, small at first, but mighty in its work since. Ten years after, in 1850, it was reorganized and improved lifeboats secured. The importance of the work may be imagined when we record that from 1852 to 1871, the wrecks on British coasts alone averaged 1,446 per annum. When we add the work of our own life-saving service and the service of lifeboats in many other lands, we may realize how inestimable is the value of such an institution. Among the earlier measures to prevent loss of life are fog bells, fog horns, and lighthouses to warn the sailor of dangerous shoals. In earlier days, wreckers sometimes silenced the fog-bell. Southie has given us a ballad upon the poetic justice said to have been meted out to a famous pirate who removed the bell placed by the abbot of Arborbrothic upon the Inch Cape Rock off the Scottish coast. One year later, with a rich booty, the pirate nears home once more. They hear no sound, the swell is strong, though the wind hath fallen, they drift along till the vessel strikes with a shivering shock Oh, christ it is the Inchcape rock so ralph the rover tore his hair he cursed himself in his despair the waves rush in on every side the ship is sinking beneath the tide with this notice of the extent to which man may be responsible for disasters the subject must be dismissed ere leaving the topic of storms the reader shall know of one of the most notable naval disasters of the century which will illustrate the difficulty in which even powerful warships faced high winds at sea. End of chapter 10